Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. I am Dawn Davenport, your host and the director of Creating a Family. And today we're going to be talking about preparing children already in the home for an adoption. And we will be talking with Gail and Molly Heath. But before we jump into the interview, I have a favor to ask. We would really appreciate it if you would pop over to iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you're listening and give us a rating. We read every single one of them. It means a lot to us and it really helps us spread the word. Our show is based on the concept that we will bring expert advice to the parents, uh, the parent community, uh, both adoption and fostering. And the more people who listen, the better it is for our mission for creating a family as well as for the reach of this show. So do us a favor and please give us a rating. You can either leave a comment or just a star rating. Either one would work. Today, we're going to be talking about preparing children already in the home for adoption, and we'll be talking with Gail and Molly Heaton. They are a mother and daughter who have lived the experience of combining children already in the home with the adoption of Russian-born, orphanage-raised, twin adoptive brothers with special needs due to early trauma. Gail is the mom, and Molly is the sibling who was already in the home. They are the co-authors of a book called Suddenly Siblings, Adventures in Fostering and Adoption, 25 Interactive Lessons You Can Do With Your Child to Prepare Them for Being a Sibling to a Child from a Trauma Background. Welcome, Gail and Molly, to Creating a Family. It is so nice to have you guys. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here. Thank you. We really appreciate this opportunity to chat with you. <laughs> okay, I wanted to begin by saying that preparation obviously is going to differ by the type of adoption, as well as the age of the child you are adopting and the age of the resident children. And, and resident children is a term we're using for children who are already in the home. And they could have been previously adopted children, or they could be children by birth, either one. And I think it, start, it helps to begin that regardless of the type of adoption, all the children, in particular the children right now, we're talking about the children who are already in the home, need to understand a bit about the basic meaning of adoption, that there are two families, that the adopted child has a, your family, which is their new family, their adopted family, but they also have a birth family. They may not have lived with that family, they may not have lived with that family, but that family exists. So that's helpful for children to understand. It's also helpful for children regardless of the type of adoption, to understand that family is family, regardless of how the newest members join. And uh, Creating a Family has a lot of books to help you. In fact, we have a uh, best of the best adoption book section, which you can find at our website, uh, creatingafamily.org. Hover over the word adoption and click on suggested books. We break it out by types of adoption and age of the child. And we have a really a good review uh, for these books. Um, and we have a section specifically there on books to help prepare kids for the adoption of a sibling. So I recommend that you go there. And, and again, we talk about different types of adoption as well as the age of the child. So please pop over there and suddenly siblings will also be there. All right. Now let's start with the different types of adoption. Gail, let me begin with you. Let's start. We, we have less, the, the, the focus is not going to be uh, on domestic infant adoption, but I think to, to make this thorough, let's go ahead and talk. So if a family is adopting a child, an infant, from domestic infant adoption, 
what are what is something what are some things that parents need to do to help the kids if there's children already in the family so you know as you mentioned the first thing would be to have this conversation with your children depending on their um their ages just kind of helping them to understand that uh, families can be formed all different ways. You know, maybe the, the resident children are the biological children. Um, and so kind of just a little, you know, a little conversation, nothing too heavy, especially if the children are younger, that, you know, you're going to be welcoming a new brother or sister. You're going to be, you know, a big brother, big sister. And then just, you know, emphasize the excitement of being that big brother or big sister. You had mentioned um, in your resources some of the uh, some of the books, and I don't know if ones that I'm going to mention here are some that you have, but there's some really awesome um, books for younger big brothers, big sisters to kind of um, walk them through this idea that yes, it's exciting to get a new sibling. Uh, but there's also maybe some things that you kind of need to think about, like maybe sharing mommy's lap. And I think there's a book, in fact, called something about the lap. I think it's called The Lap Snatcher. That's a really cute little storybook that kind of talks about, you know, you're going to be sharing a little bit of mommy and daddy's mm -hmm. time with the new sibling. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. And, and, Honestly, the your library, your public library is full of, they, most of them have sections, a specific uh, number of, in their library that it's specific to Big Brother and Big Sister books. So that's a, that's a universal thing. Now let's move on to talking about when we are adding children from foster care or international adoption. And, and in particular, and I'll start with, if you are adding a child who is coming into your family as a foster child, it is crucial that you help your children already in the home understand what fostering means. And one of the main things that they need to understand is that your role as a foster family is to be a soft landing, a place for this child to be while their family, their mom and their dad, uh, heal. And there are people who are helping their mom and dad, and chances are very good that this child is going to go back home. And that's crucial for, for the children in the home to understand. I also think with both foster care and international adoption, another thing that's very helpful is to prepare kids for the wait and the unknown. We often hear that, particularly with foster, well, and international, we often don't have a real firm uh, timeline. And so children don't know how long they're waiting before this uh, new sibling uh, comes. And there's just so much unknown. And kids are, all, are not expected to, to deal with the unknown. They're used to us as parents having all the answers. Uh, as, as much of a fiction as that is, they are used to that. And when somebody is adding a child by birth to a family, there is more known, as far, especially on the timeline. So I think it's helpful to prepare them for the fact that we don't know a lot about the timing. Now, let's talk about some of the other changes that uh, resident children, children already in the house, should be prepared for when you're adopting an older child, be it from foster care or fostering, either one, fostering or adopting an older child. Molly, as someone who was the resident child, what were some of the things that you either were thankful you had been prepared for or wished you had been prepared for before your brothers arrived? I think that just 
because there was a lot of unknowns, there was more that I wish I had been prepared for. And the things that I was prepared for in more detail, like just the very basic dynamic of the amount of time my parents would spend with them and even some of my other siblings. I guess I assumed that, you know, once my brothers arrived, everything would be the same, but just with two extra siblings. But there was a lot of other added components to that. You know, they didn't speak the language, and they didn't speak English, and I didn't speak Russian. I guess I hadn't really thought about that. Like, Mm -hmm. there's no real way to communicate with each other. Yeah, yeah. And that would be something that, and if you hadn't planned on it, so much of our relationships are formed through the ability to communicate. If you couldn't communicate, that impeded your ability to form a relationship. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, we, and, you know, just the, honestly, I think the biggest part was the amount of time that my my parents and my older sister spent making sure that they that my adopted brothers were able to settle and fit in. And, it, you know, it was it was absolutely necessary that they did that, 100%. But I didn't understand why all of a sudden it seemed like I and my younger siblings are, you know, the time that they spent with us wasn't as important. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand the fact that my siblings had come, my adopted siblings had come from trauma, I didn't understand why their behaviors were so erratic. You know, my parents were trying to protect me and my younger siblings from the horrible things that happened to my adopted brothers. But what it just ended up doing instead was leaving a, a huge hole and unknown in you know my knowledge. And I didn't understand, number one, why my parents and my older sister spent so much time with them and why they acted the way they did. All right, let's let's tease those two out. The uh, let's talk about the amount of time. Gail, what can parents do in advance to help their children understand the lack of time? Or the amount. Let's let's do it the other way. The amount of time newly adopted kids who are coming into the family who have experienced trauma in the past how much time those children are going to need. What can parents do to help? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's also one of the really tricky ones because both parents and the resident siblings always underestimate the amount of time that it's actually going to be taken from the sibling and put on the incoming child, if that makes sense. So yes, we need to have conversations. Parents need to have conversations with the resident kids and say, you know, there's this, there's this adjustment period that's going to take place, but we don't really know how long that adjustment period will take, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but even letting the resident child know ahead of time that somewhat of a kind of a timeline, you know, um, the child comes into the home, the new child. We've got this cocooning period that we all as a family have to stick close. Um, And then as the child adjusts, then there may be some other issues that come up with this new child that the parents have to attend to. And so these are all conversations done in the theoretical, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so I guess what I'm hoping to convey is that these conversations have to continue well past that preparation stage. Um, parents who can check in with the resident kids and say, hey, how are you feeling about the amount of time that I have to spend on your new brother? And, and kind of opening up those avenues of communication between parent and resident child. I think that's something that is really, really helpful because you just don't know. You think it's gonna be one way, you think it's gonna uh, look one way, and then it ends up that my goodness, my parents are spending more time with the new kid than what I even realized. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they're spending all that time means that they are not available to take me to dance. They are, uh, we're not reading. Uh, moms, uh, you know, used to always read a chapter book and read a chapter every night. Now she tells me to read it by myself that we used to do this and now we're not doing this. So it's, I liked how you said it, it's theoretical when you first are starting to talk, when you're preparing your kids, but continuing to check in when it's no longer theoretical, when the rubber hits the road <laughs> is, the, uh, is crucial. So we've talked about lack of time and that's, that is real. And as you say, it is really hard in advance to prepare yourself, even if you think you are being proactive, it is really hard to understand the amount of time that this child likely will need. But uh, the other thing, Molly, that you brought up was challenging behaviors. How, why was that confusing to you? What were some of the issues uh, without share, oversharing details for your brothers, but what are some of the issues that you faced as a kid who was, how old were you, by the way, when your uh, brothers arrived? I was 11. 11. So as an 11-year-old, how did their behaviors look to you and how did they make you feel? And, and why were they a problem for you? Um, a lot of their behaviors had to do, I mean, they probably just stemmed from their own confusion and mistrust of all of us. But I remember they threw a lot of tantrums. And we just, myself and my siblings, we just never, you know, we never grew up needing to express ourselves in that way. And so I didn't understand why they couldn't, they didn't know how to express themselves verbally or in just, you know, different, more, uh, I guess, just less childish ways. Now, I mean, today I understand that they were only six years old and that they had trauma and they couldn't verbalize what was going on because we didn't speak the same language. At the time, those things didn't, they didn't make sense to me because I was 11 and I hadn't had that explanation. You know, this is, this is what happened. They're not going to trust us and they can't communicate what's going on inside. Um, but just the, the, the tantrums, like the hair thin reactions to different stimulus, like one moment we could be playing together and then the next they would just, something would go off and they would just be screaming and hitting and throwing things. Mm -hmm. what, what, from your standpoint, it looked like an overreaction to a small thing, but for them, they were. Yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely. All right. So Gail, as a parent, how can we prepare the children already in the home for in advance? We don't, we're not even quite sure what the behaviors are going to be, although we, we can predict that what Molly ex expressed, uh, uh, tantruming, depending, of course, on the age, tantruming for the child, 
uh, what would be perceived as a overreaction, but for them is they're you know hyperstimulated and easily easily set off. Things such as that could be uh, could be predicted. So how can parents work with their uh, resident children, both in advance and then during the during the adjustment time, the first year or so after the adoption? Yeah, right. Um, you know, I don't think that there's any way we can get around the fact that we're going to have to teach our resident kids something about trauma. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. one of the best things that happened to me as an adoptive mom was getting the book The Connected Child. Um, there's a number of wonderful, wonderful books out there that I was able to glean from that helps me as a parent understand what does a trauma response look like in the adopted child. And we're gonna have to teach that to our resident kids. How we do it will depend on the ages of the resident kids. We ha- it's a, it, it can be kind of tricky because we want, well, first off, if we don't know, like you say, Don, we don't know what those behaviors might be down the road if we're in the, the uh, pre-placement phase, but we have to let them know that there could possibly be some tricky behaviors that they're going to see. And the key from what I have found in my research is that we have to help our resident kids know that what they're seeing in their adopted brother or sister or their foster sibling, that behavior isn't about the resident. In other words, if the adopted child is having a tantrum day, depending on the age of the resident child, they're actually going to think that it's about them, that they must have done something wrong. And they might also think that it somehow is their responsibility as the resident sibling to fix what's just happened with their adopted sibling. So we as parents, in preparing our resident kids, we need to kind of let them off the hook, so to speak, and say, look, these behaviors, you know, here are some potential behaviors that you might see in your new sibling. I want you to know this is about some things that have happened to them in their past, and it's not anything that has to do with you, right? And then set some clear guidelines on this is what how... I, what I expect from you as the resident sibling um, to be welcoming. And these are some things that you, this isn't in your, you know, this isn't in your wheelhouse. This isn't what you have to do. You do not have to be the one to make sure that your adopted brother doesn't run away or doesn't have a tantrum, right? We got to take that pressure off the resident kids um, for thinking that, all of these explosive behaviors in their new sibling is about them. Mm-hmm. And taking the responsibility for, from them for, for trying to fix it. I like that because sometimes children do feel like, particularly if the explosion or the uh, whatever the behavior is, is in response to something that the child already in the home did. Um, even though that they didn't cause the child to react, but it's hard to, to see that, that when they're the ones who... Who you know took the took the ball away and then ha- and then that precipitated a three hour meltdown. Mm-hmm. 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 That makes sense. Yeah, and you know some 
some of the things that Molly had mentioned um, about why did my sibling act this way? You know, um, resident kids have expectations of behavior that they've learned in their home. Mm -hmm. And they're just naturally going to assume that that's universal. Everybody has that. Everybody understands that. Mm -hmm. So when parents can proactively Mm -hmm. say, you know, and, and this is especially pertinent to international adoption, you know, your new brother's coming from a different culture. You know, let's talk about what that looks like. Let's, let's learn about this culture. Let's learn all that we can so that we can, as parents, we can help our residents understand, yeah, there's going to be some profound differences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both cultural as well as cultural from the society as well as cultural in the sense that if the children were raised in an institution, there's just a whole different expectation. There is no expectation of family life most often. So what it means to be in a family is alien to these kids as well. So what I hear you say is sharing what you as a parent are learning about how trauma can manifest itself in behaviors and sitting down and giving very explicit, you are not responsible for your child's, uh, for your sibling, your new sibling's behavior. And you can't fix it, but, but I can. I'm studying, I'm learning, and, and I'm the, I am the resource to come to, and I can handle it. Am I uh, oversimplifying what you're saying there, Gail? No, that's absolutely perfect. It's absolutely, and I love how you highlighted that it's the parent's responsibility to say, I got this. Mm-hmm. Because resident kids, mm-hmm. they'll pick up on the, the chaos that might be going on in the family. And one of the things that can be most disturbing and stressful for the resident kids is when they think, uh, my parent is, doesn't, like, they're freaking out about mm-hmm. my sibling's behavior too. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. that's not to put a guilt trip on parents. We have to, we, we do the best that we can. But having those conversations with the residents saying, I got this, this is my, my responsibility. And I like how you said, Don, I'm learning how to do this. So it's like this adventure of, of, of learning and self-discovery. And yes, I'm going to be taking care of your sibling and you. Yeah. And, and I may not, it may not be perfect. <laughs> I'm going to do the best I can. I'm learning. Yes, exactly. Um, Molly, what would have helped you at the time about the loss of parental attention that you felt, the loss of having to share your time, likely your personal space as well, uh, but but in particular your parents and older sisters' attention? Would is there anything looking back that would have helped you at that time? I think if we had been able to have more like one-on-one conversations about what was going on, like. And it didn't even have to be one-on-one conversations, but just like everyone together as a family, here's what's going on. And just a continuous conversation about what's happening and why, so that I wasn't left to wonder and to make up reasons as to why things are happening the way that they are. Give me an example of, a, of something that you made up in your head that now you realize it, that wasn't it, but as an 11-year-old, that's how it felt. You know, there were there were some pretty dark, you know, dark thoughts that um, that I had. One one of the worst ones I had was that that my parents chose to adopt because they wanted 
new children because they didn't weren't you know the rest of us weren't enough for them mm-hmm. that you know there were times where I felt I wasn't enough and so they were spending so much time you know like when you get a new toy and the rest of the toys you know aren't as exciting anymore mm-hmm. that's definitely there were certain times where I felt that I was just kind of cast off mm-hmm. which you know is definitely not the case no, but that oftentimes children's perceptions, uh, we as adults see it quite differently. And, and, and in fairness, we probably believe that we see it accurately. But from a child's perspective, that's not how they're seeing it. Uh, and we as parents need to be prepared for how our kids. So that's such an, such an important thing for us parents to think through. And that is that a, a young, uh, uh, not you weren't terribly young, you were 11, but a tween, but Children don't understand the reasons why we adopt. And, and honestly, they weren't the ones who were choosing it. Therefore, when this comes in, this total disruption comes into their house, understanding how it is, why your parents did it, and it doesn't involve you would be important. Yeah, that makes really good sense. Yeah, it does. Uh, uh, Gail, from your standpoint, what would you do now that you didn't do then, or you did do then, and you're glad you did then, to help uh, prepare the children in the house for the loss of, of your attention and time? Yeah, well, I can only answer that in the negative. There's so much that I would do differently now. It's really interesting. Um, once you see this issue, you can't unsee it. And what I mean by that is parents get a tremendous amount of great training pre-placement for how how to meet the needs of the incoming child. And that's important and, and it should not stop, um, especially that trauma piece, right? How can, how can we look at it in the best interest of the incoming child? What parents, you know, foremost on the minds of all parents when they foster, uh, look to foster or adopt is how's it going to affect my kids? But that's such a, nebulous question, right? Without some concrete, well, let me tell you how it's going to in this and this and this and this and this. Parents just, well, let me back up. I was clueless. I'm not going to say all parents were, but I was clueless. I thought that all the years that I spent pouring into my five biological children um, had created a resilience in them that would be enough to withstand whatever pressures came on them for being siblings of these children who come from traumatic backgrounds. So I did not know that they're going to need a lot more resilience than what I thought, right? Mm -hmm. So what would I do differently now? I would um, take a look at each of my resident children as individuals and ask myself, okay, how might this affect them? What might be stress, stressful for them? And it could differ, and it did in my family with five resident kids. Um, each one responded to the stressors differently, right? So understanding that we parents need to simultaneously look at what is in the best interest of our resident kids. And then we need to get our hands on as much information as we possibly can on what typical stressors 
might be? What are some stressors that resident kids have in common? And I actually interviewed adult resident siblings. I was inspired by my frank conversations with Molly, and I was able to interview other adult resident kids and ask them, hey, just kind of like the, kind of like the questions, Don, that you're asking Molly, you know, what was it like for you? And I was able to, to have these, um, uh, to put the responses in these categories of these things that really stressed out, like a universal stress for kids, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, if parents can start with a list of, you know, five or six categories of things that kind of are universally stressful for resident kids, then I think they've got uh, more than a fighting chance mm-hmm. to, to tailor it and, and, and individualize it to each of their unique resident kids. Mm-hmm. One of our wonderful partners is Spitz Chapin. They are a licensed and accredited nonprofit organization in the New York City metro area that has been offering adoption services for more than 100 years. Their international adoption programs focus on finding permanent, loving families for children in need of adoption in South Africa, Colombia, and Bulgaria. Spitz Chapin is dedicated to guiding parents with lifelong support and education, and they advocate for all types of families who want to become parents, including married couples, unmarried couples, LGBTQ parents, single moms, and single men. Go to spitz chapinorg to find out more. So let's talk about some of those universal stresses. We've mentioned some. The, right, right, right. The uh, lack of parental attention, the un- uh, challenging behaviors. I think we'd be, we'll mm-hmm. just use that as a short circuit. Uh, challenging behaviors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, one of, the one that surprised me the most when I interviewed the, the adult residents was they, and, and this is for children, in, in the, I, I looked this up in the research as well, for children between the ages of five all the way up to puberty, the unknowns surrounding why their foster sibling ended up in care, state care, or why their adopted sibling ended up as uh, orphaned, it creates these insecurities in the resident child, and they fear that what happened to their foster or adopted siblings' parents will happen to them. I had no idea. That one was a shocker for me. Well, and that's an interesting one for, so let's talk about that for a minute because yeah. it brings up, we want our, we want to share with the children in the home, what we know and the reasons that this child is, has entered our home. We want to do that mm-hmm. because we want to help our children understand the behaviors they're seeing. We want to help them be more empathetic. Uh, so for all those reasons, we want to share. But on the other hand, how much of your new child's story should you share with the existing kids? Because ultimately, some of the story is not pretty. It's not, it's not the feel-good, sweet story. And, and the child, it's, it's, it's his or her story. And they may not choose to share it. So... The uh, let me let me turn to Molly for a moment and say, from your perspective, did you were, was a lot shared with you, or was it not? And would you have wished more or less would have been shared? Um, I did not 
know any of the details about my adopted brother's background until many, many years later. I think because I didn't have an understanding, all I knew is that they lived in an orphanage, and that's where we adopted them from. That's all I knew. I didn't know, you know, all I knew about that was what I had read in, you know, fictional books. And so I, you know, continued to create an idea of what happened, which was incorrect. And so I wasn't able to have a true understanding of what they had gone through. And therefore, I wasn't able to have like a correct or better approach to how I would handle myself during times where, you know, during times where they might have a um, have a, an explosive uh, emotional outburst. And I, I believe that if I had, you know, a better understanding comparable to my age and continued to learn as I grew of what they had gone through, that I would be able to understand why they acted the way they did and why my parents spent so much time with them. And, you know, knowing the why definitely would have helped me and how I was feeling about myself and my surroundings. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And so, Gail, knowing that now, at the same time knowing that you need to be somewhat protective of the new child's story as well, how would you do it different? Yeah, we we have to be protective of the new child's story. We have to be honoring their history because, you know, as as you mentioned, Dot, it is it is their story, it is their history. But we do we do need to talk in terms of you know, I don't even know that how how much detail is even necessary. And so in the pre-placement phase, which is the most ideal time to prepare the resident siblings. You may not know a whole lot of history yet anyway. So we can talk in terms of the brain, right? Um, Dan Siegel's hand model of the brain. um, Hopefully people are familiar with that, where you you look at this concept of flipping your lid, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we we can prepare our, our resident siblings by saying things like, you know, some of the early experiences that your new brother or sister might have had can cause them to um, think differently about things, might cause them to get angry quickly with this uh, hand model of the brain. We can teach them this concept of the amygdala and how when that's overactive, you know, the children can remain in this fight, flight, or freeze phase. I think preparing, you know, preparing them by letting them know that our brains are shaped by our past experiences. And we can teach our children, depending on their age, even even as young as like three, four, five years old, this idea that when you have an overactive part of your brain, and maybe your sibling has a more overactive part of their brain, um, they're going to flip their lid. They're going to be upset about things that maybe you're not upset about. Doesn't make them a bad kid. It might make them a scared or a hurt kid. And so we prepare our siblings by letting them know that at the same time that we also say to our sibling, hey, 
you're going to be flipping your lid a little bit sometimes too because of your sibling's behavior. And guess what? That's okay. It's perfectly okay, perfectly normal to be upset about or, or fearful of some of the behaviors that your sibling um, is exhibiting. And in fact, one of the things that, you know, I, I, I mentioned that list earlier, right? Of when I talked with the adult resident siblings, what are, what are some of these categories of stresses? A major stress for, for most all of them was that they thought they were the worst sibling in the world because they resented their new brother or sister at times. Mm -hmm. So they have this, I'm excited for my sibling. I like my sibling. I love my sibling. And that is contained in their little heads at the same time that they're feeling resentment. And the siblings that I spoke with, the adults that I spoke with said, they thought they were the only ones in the world who was as bad a sibling as they were. Mm -hmm. They didn't know that it was, you know, as a child, they need parents need to kind of give permission to their sibling to be upset. You know, we were going to go to the ballpark today, but Susie had a meltdown and I had to attend to that. And now nobody can go. Well, of course, the resident sibling is going to be upset. Right. Mm -hmm. But if they don't know that it's OK for them to express their own disappointment, they'll hide it and they'll think, oh, you know what? Here I am so upset about not going to the ballpark. And then I think about Susie's early life. And she had it so much worse. And so now they're feeling guilty. The resident kid is feeling guilty mm -hmm. about their own feelings, mm -hmm. if that yeah. makes sense. And I know that Molly certainly um, helped me to, to understand that feeling. And then in, in talking with these other adult residents, just that, that need for the residents to know and be around others who get it. Mm-hmm. So they don't feel like they're the worst sibling in the world for some very normal feelings that they might have. Mm -hmm. So some of the, uh, the universals that you talked about, one is uh, some of the ones we've talked about are understanding the, the behavior, uh, coming understanding the impact, needing to understand the impact of, of trauma, uh, loss of parental time, another universal, and uh, feeling like that if they get angry, which of course they're going to do, that that makes them a bad sibling and feeling like their resentment of their sibling makes them a bad sibling or a bad person. So those are all some universals that you have found in interviews of resident siblings. Any other universals that you found, Gail? Yeah, and, and I think, um, you know, in, in hearing Molly's story, um, and I, I, I love her vulnerability and her braveness and sharing um, her perspective, by and large, every adult sibling that I interviewed said that they didn't know that fostering or adoption would be as hard on them as it really was. Mm -hmm. They all mm -hmm. said that they were unprepared. Um, they all said that, that mm -hmm. it, you know, especially like in the interpersonal challenges between them and their sibling, they didn't know how much of their siblings' trauma would spill out onto them. Mm -hmm. Let's talk some about 
the secondary traumatic stress, because I think that uh, while I agree with you that I think siblings are unprepared, honestly, I think parents are sometimes unprepared and, and their lack of preparation for how the child coming is in trauma can and, and behaviors as a result of that trauma can affect, well, honestly, the parents too, but right now we're talking about the siblings. I think parents are often... Molly, can you explain, and I don't know if in fact this, but looking back, do you think that you suffered some secondary stress, secondary traumatic stress from your brother's behaviors? Uh, yeah, I, I do believe so. Um, I definitely showed symptoms of PTSD, which I couldn't have gotten on my own. So, you know, just being near them and experiencing the outer effects of their trauma, you know, mm -hmm. definitely caused me to experience my own much smaller but still important trauma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's, uh, yeah, we don't have to, this is not a, the pain Olympics. We don't have to compare our, our trauma to somebody else's and, and minimize ours because it's, it's not as great. That's, that's not, not, not helpful nor necessary. Uh, let me also pause and say the, the Dan Siegel uh, model of the brain is easily, there's graphics all over the internet. Uh, I meant to, to, to say that. Uh, so just Google that uh, and you will see a, uh, a model of the hand and, and what he explains. And it's a good way of explaining the impact of trauma on a brain. So that's a, it's, a good, uh, it's a good way to use it both for adults and for children. So, okay, back to you, Gail, then. Understanding, what do you understand now about the secondary traumatic stress that can happen to siblings that are already in the home when you bring in a child that has suffered a significant trauma in early life and, and behaves, uh, behaves according to that? Yeah, I mean, who knew, right? Who, who knew that there was this thing called secondary traumatic stress and that it could lead to something called secondary trauma? Who knew that? We can do only what we know, right? We can only work with what we know. One thing I, I do want to say about this, this term, secondary trauma stress, secondary does not mean less than. It means indirect. So the stresses that can be placed on our resident children, even though we're calling them secondary, does not mean that it is any less, any real any less important. We parents need to know that and our resident children need to know that. They need to know that we understand when, when we can understand, right? As we educate ourselves, we need to let our resident children know that these are potential stresses on them. We need to keep this dialogue with them throughout the whole pre-placement, placement, honeymoon phase is over, into the hard times, and then periodically throughout the years. Let them know how fostering and adopting of children who have come from trauma backgrounds, how it affects them, the resident, and it's important for them to get the support that they need. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't understand that um, secondary trauma stress can come up, come sort of pass to the residents um, based on what their sibling has told them about their early life. 
you know, those, those secret late night conversations between siblings where the, the foster child reveals something to the sibling that maybe even the foster parent doesn't know yet, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes yeah. in the way that the, the incoming, the new sibling plays or their drawings or their stories can cause this sort of stress. Mm-hmm. When, when the, the new child, when they get re-triggered, some of their trauma is, is re-triggered, um, and we could do a whole thing on, you know, a whole conversation on, on what some trauma reminders might be. Those reactions, that causes secondary trauma. Um, and then, you know, as we talked before, just the, uh, the compromised emotion regulation that sometimes um, accompanies children who have come from hard backgrounds, just siblings react, the, the resident siblings reaction to those behaviors can cause the secondary traumatic stress. I think parents need to know what to look for um, in, in, as a stress response in their resident kids. You know, what are um, some of those things that, that are, a, uh, are emblematic of a child who is under stress that needs, needs parental help? What are some of those symptoms? Right, right. Nightmares that have kind of come on, uh, whether the child remembers them or not. Increase, if you see an increase in nervousness or irritability in your resident child, maybe they're, uh, you know, have difficulty concentrating, um, anger, outbursts, a child who has been a very compliant child in the past um, is suddenly, you know, throwing off all the rules and, and they're kind of, it seems, and I have this in air quotes, seems like they're rebelling. Um, those are signs, um, feelings of disconnectedness between themselves and the family. But the thing is, is that parents need to know what to look for. They know they, they need to know, you know, some of these things can be hidden. Let me put it that way. Some of these things, when, when resident children are stressed, sometimes they're not going to tell the parents. Often. Yeah. Very often. Yeah. Let's just go ahead and call yeah. what it is. Most of the time yeah. they're not going to, they don't want to burden the parents with, you know, I don't want to worry you with my problems. You're, you're, concerned about you know my my sibling over here children also sense when their parents are stressed to the max and they don't want to be the straw that breaks the camel's back all right so molly another thing that we will we often hear that is confusing for resident children is the different rules and expectations and different forms of discipline. It can feel like favoritism to a child. Did you experience any of that where your brothers from your young mind were getting away with murder and, you know, things that you couldn't possibly, you would have been punished for, but they could get away with, or they were being disciplined differently. Did you experience any of that? Yes, absolutely. I, you know, I was the, like the oldest of, my of the younger siblings, my older sister is um, three and a half years older than me, and so she was like on a you know on a different mm-hmm. level. And it honestly, it wasn't just with my adopted brothers. It was it was like I was the one who was in charge of all my siblings, and if everyone was being rambunctious, I was the one that would uh, you know be responsible. It actually you know we my youngest brother started calling me guys because every time 
my siblings would get into trouble, my mom or my dad would yell, guys, and I'd say, I'm sorry. <laughs> so he started thinking that that was my nickname. Um, but yeah, it was, I, you know, definitely experienced um, a fair amount of, of that differential parenting. And, you know, I didn't understand why it felt like all of a sudden things were more strict for me and less strict, not, you know, not just my adopted siblings, but my younger siblings as well. So for all the younger kids, it felt like they were getting away with stuff that you wouldn't have been allowed to at their age. And for you, it felt stricter even because you were, but you felt that the expectation was for you to be on your best behavior so that they would either follow or that you could control them. Am I summing all that up? Yeah. Yes. That is a real common thing that we hear. And uh, so what are some things, and and I'll open this to both of you, because it sounds like the two of you have had some really interesting discussions. Gail, I'll start with you. What are some things that you could, that knowing what you know now, uh, and and please may this not sound like in any way, I am the least likely person to ever cast stones. (laughs) My house is made of glass, let me tell you. So I do not cast (laughs) stones. I'm always, you know, I'm always impressed when people are willing to help others learn through their own mistakes. And I try to model that as well, because heaven only knows I've made more than my share. So, yeah, coming back, though, to you, Gail, uh, knowing now from, from now that Molly has shared this with you, what might you do different in the preparation and then not just the preparation, but in the, in the lived experience? And let's not and let's say that we're speaking in particular of the first X number of year or so that you're home when everybody is trying to find the new normal. Yeah. So this is actually another one of those, those points, those categories I was telling you about with the adult resident siblings, it's kind of a universal thing. And I think what I, um, universal thing for the resident child to be super confused about rule changes and discrepancies in rule making. So I think if I could do it over again, I would just know that that isn't going to be an issue. I did not know that that would be an issue. Um, A lot of resident children think that these rule changes are because of them. So again, it kind of goes back to the child's developmental Mm -hmm. stage. You know, younger children for sure believe everything is about them. Yeah, it like it's back to the idea in a divorce. You know, we know that children tend to be so me focused that they assume they are the reason their parents are getting a divorce. And it's such a common thing. And what you're saying is the same thing here. They assume that when the house is chaotic or when their parents have have all of a sudden what used to be the rule is no longer the rule or it doesn't feel that way for others, but maybe even more so for you. They assume that it's them who has caused this. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yes. So, you know, a suggestion would be again, to go back and have those conversations with your resident children and, and even outline, you know, let's, let's talk about your job description as a resident child. These are some of the things that I expect you to do, you know, like in terms of being welcoming and um, being willing to share some of your toys, but not all of them. This, this is kind of what I expect from you, but guess what? These are the things that I don't expect from you. I don't expect 
you to, you know, think that you have to be the one to manage the chaos of your sibling, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So, so one of the things would be, you know, helping the resident child know what is their burden to carry and what isn't their burden to carry. But that, that piece for parents to be aware that, you know, we can, we can talk to our resident child all we want and say, it's not about you. You know, this doesn't have anything to do with you, but shifting the resident child into that place is a little bit more difficult in, in the real life. Um, A lot of times resident kids think that the reason that their new sibling doesn't get in trouble is because parents like that new sibling better than Mm -hmm. they like them. Mm -hmm. You're right. And so having conversations, constant conversations, role-playing some, some ideas in, in the pre-placement stage to the degree that the parent can come up with some, some rules. They could even talk with the resident child and say, okay, look, so here, you know, we've, we've never maybe really sat down as a family and said, these are our family rules. Let's put them on paper now. And then let's talk about how maybe an incoming child who have never had these rules, how that might be confusing to them. Mm-hmm. And kind of maybe depending on the age of the child, almost like problem solve with them. You know, so I would say uh, the, the me who knows better now to Molly, I would say so. So Molly, um, what might be some rules that you think uh, a new sibling from a different country might have trouble following? And Molly may or may not have, you know, an answer. She may say, well, uh, we all belong to the clean plate club mm-hmm. <laughs> at dinner time. That and will so be, that, will be, that was a big one for us. You know, we... Growing up, my siblings and I, we always needed to eat everything on our plate. And, you know, my adopted brothers, given leeway to, they didn't like something, they did not have to eat it. They were allowed to find something Mm -hmm. else to eat. And I just remembering being 11 and Mm -hmm. not understanding, you know, new cuisine is is Mm -hmm. scary sometimes, especially when you're little and, and trying to get used to new foods and new flavors and even when we tried to imitate you know Russian foods um it didn't turn out so well but like mm-hmm. you know I I never understood well I don't like this why mm-hmm. can't I have something yeah else? No, and I'll tell you another one is that not necessarily this is not necessarily with international but a child liking and having been used to eating a lot of junk food and in that family and in your family Junk food is not something you ate, but now all of a sudden the parents are getting the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, the sugary cereal and the, the Mac cheese in a box, uh, and, and even the brand name Mac cheese, not the, the knockoff Mac cheese, which, you know, the mom and dad had always bought before, you know, (laughs) and because now the new kid likes the Kraft macaroni and, you know, so that's the, and it feels, so food is actually, it's a funny thing you say that. Molly, but that actually is something I've heard a lot. <laughs> uh, and and I, as a person who, as a parent who really does try to, to cook and encourage healthy eating, it, it would, it's hard for me. It is hard. It's like, oh gosh, you know, uh, now, now everybody's going to be eating nothing but sugar and white bread and white rice and all of that. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. So figuring out, it, it, it's, it's hard to figure out how to handle it 
but I think your resentment is real. So coming back to you, Gail, knowing, setting it up ahead of time and preparing and, and, you know, honestly, relaxing some of all the food rules and just saying, you know what, guys? Yeah. Okay. So I really like us to eat healthy, but you know what, (laughs) for a while, we're not going to be pushing it as much. Yeah. So any other thoughts from your stand? Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, when, when we, when we as parents are looking at bringing in new children into our family, um, older children, children who have come from traumatic backgrounds, when, when we think about that compassion piece for them and what they're going to need in order to overcome their early environment, I think it gives a, a tremendous opportunity for us parents to take a look at what kind of environment that we can sort of recreate for our resident kids too. You know, we, we learn, I'm, I'm a TBRI trust-based relational intervention practitioner. Yes. <laughs> Easy for me to say, right? And there's some wonderful, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, not a problem. (laughs) And there's some some wonderful ideas on how to create connection with your hurt children, Mm -hmm. you know, with with your children who come from trauma backgrounds. And I'd love to say, hey, parents, let's take those things that we learn about how to create connection and make sure that we're creating connection with our resident children too. I think so many times we think we got it with them. You know, we've like, like, we'll use Molly for an example. I've parented her for 11 years. I got it. Gee, wouldn't it be nice to be able to say, huh, what can I do to, to increase the amount of connection that Mm -hmm. I give to her? Right. So especially back, we go, we go back to, to that same old thing, time, the time spent with, that's the number one issue um, that resident kids have is I don't Mm -hmm. have the same amount of time and I maybe don't have the same kind of time. So what can parents do to create uh, more connection with the resident child when they don't have the time? Mm-hmm. What's meaningful? And it when, when we think in terms of uh, that for all of our children, instead of feeling overwhelmed, oh, I'm doing so much for my incoming child, and now, Gail, Molly, you're telling me that I got to look at this and this and this for my resident child. I'm mm-hmm. crushed mm-hmm. under this weight. Instead of, and I hope, I, I hope that uh, that's not happening to anyone who's listening or, or anyone who uses any of our resources. I hope what instead is sort of this, this call toward, hey, what can we do across the board to have a more open communicative environment? What can we do to bring more understanding uh, to our mm-hmm. resident kids? How, how can we express to them, guys, your voice mm-hmm. is important. It has yes. always mattered. Your voice is right? important and I, can, and I can handle it. I will listen to you and your mm-hmm. voice is important. That is such a... That is such an important message that I think, and, but here's the reality, you know, the truth is when you're bringing a new child into the family or children into the family, 
you're maxed. Your own stress is sky high. You're maxed every second of your day. It feels like it's being <laughs> consumed. So some of what it takes is thinking ahead of time. How do you prepare and set up your life so that you can find extra time, extra space? What can you cut out? What can you ask others to do? What can, how can you create a margin in your life? Because you're going to be maxed out. So what can you do ahead of time? that will allow you to be more present and connected to all of your children. Therein lies the, the challenge. Yeah, if, you know, if, if, if I could summarize, you know, if somebody were to ask me, okay, Gail, pick one thing, you know, you've, you've done this research, you've interviewed, you've lived, you know, uh, knowing a little bit better now, what it, going back, what would you do? What, what would the number one thing be? That would be, making sure that my children, my resident children feel understood and feel important and have others around them that can normalize their very normal feelings. Um, support groups. Oh my goodness. We parents know the, the value and the importance of support groups for us so that we feel like we're not the only ones, you know, really stressed to the max. How much more so for our resident kids? Wouldn't it be great if we could get them together with other resident kids, formally, informally, structured, mm -hmm. unstructured, doesn't matter, get them kind mm -hmm. of talking, right? So they don't feel like they're the only one in the world facing these things and they don't feel like everybody else probably mm -hmm. has it together and they're the mm -hmm. only one struggling. Mm -hmm. So that support piece and then, and then, I would have wanted more support for myself so that um, those times when one of the siblings was acting out and we had to cancel a family event, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if I had somebody on the ready, a friend um, who would come over and sort of, you know, who was trauma informed themselves, who could maybe, quote, babysit the child who was disrupting so that the rest of so so that the rest of the family could do what we mm -hmm. already planned to do mm -hmm. oh, wouldn't that mm -hmm. be nice but you got to plan ahead for something like you that you absolutely do and it and sometimes it requires dividing and conquering where one parent takes the others and mm -hmm. one parent stays home and it takes it takes forethought and it takes uh, it takes energy and it takes these are the things that families need to think through uh, because it can be the experience of adding a new child to your family can be rewarding for everyone. And it does deepen empathetic responses for our resident children. It can be a good experience, but it is a stressful experience. And in preparing for that in advance really does, really does help. And that is a, a perfect uh, way for me to end by saying that I so appreciate the Suddenly Sibling book. It is an interactive book with lessons that you can do with your resident children dealing with all the issues we've just talked about. So I, I strongly recommend the book. It can be bought. Uh, I, Molly, can it be bought on Amazon uh, or just through your website? Um, it is available okay, on so Amazon. It can be bought on Amazon. I also, since we need to be supporting our, our small booksellers, our, our, our bricks and mortar booksellers, ask them to order the book. It is available to order as well 
uh, or you can go to the Suddenly Siblings website and order it off of there as well. Let me remind everyone that this show is underwritten by the Jockey Bean Family Foundation. Every day, Jockey Bean Family is fostering change in hope of bright futures for our adoptive families. The journey of adoption can be challenging, unpredictable, and of course, rewarding. We believe in supporting children every step of the way. Together, we can support, educate, and strengthen families to help create their own happily ever after. Please support Jockey Bean Family in this journey at their website, jockeybeanfamily.com. Uh, let me remind everybody the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family. Our partners are our underwriters. Keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice to understand how it applies to your specific situation. You need to work with your adoption or foster care professional. Thank you for joining us today and I will see you next week.